Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, and welcome to Sentimental Garbage, a podcast about the chiclet that made us who we are. My name is Karen O'Donoghue, and I'm an author, a journalist, and a small closet with which to masturbate in. Joining me is graphic designer, photographer, and colony of moss, Gavin Day. Today we're talking about The Signature of All Things by Elizabeth Gilbert. Hello. Hello, you. (laughs) (laughs) I saw you at home this morning. You did! (laughs) I was asleep. Um, So, Gavin, what makes this the chiclet that made you who you are, given that you've read it in the last, you know... Month. When we talk about this book, I want everyone to imagine me as a 15-year-old boy walking around the <laughs> playground telling all the lads that they need to read this book because it's <laughs> going to make them who they are. <laughs> okay, so this is the chicklet that made the last... Four weeks of my life, really. Who you are. The odd car journey and who I am today <laughs> in this studio. For anyone who doesn't know, we aren't in a relationship. We have been for many years. Oh, I thought you would have done this in the intro to the intro. But no, yeah. there is. <laughs> Warning everyone, this is a, both a man and a man I've slept with. So guard am, your ears. To my knowledge, I'm the only guest that you've seen naked. So No, actually, that's not true. No, no, no that's actually not true. <laughs> uh, there are... Two upcoming guests that I've seen naked, but they're both women, so I don't know if it really... Okay, this is the new format. Any, <laughs> any future guests? Um, what was incredibly rewarding to me is that, you know, I, uh, we've been together for a long time. I read a huge amount of fiction, as, as most of the listeners of this podcast will know. You're mm. not a particular... You're, you're a book lover, in that, and you're an artist, so you have a huge amount of art books at home. Mm. And you, you're kind of one of those people who um, will buy, like, a non-fiction book... Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, we'll buy like a non-fiction book, kind of read the intro plus the first chapter and be like, I, can, I think I get the idea, I and have, then sort of toss it aside. I have read so many of the first 30 pages of the fiction we have at home. I yeah. can tell you everything about the first 30 pages of... Station Harvard. 11. Yeah, I can, No, no, I read 80 pages of Station 11. I just didn't like it. So, sorry guys, I just didn't like that book. Um, yeah, I don't know what it is. I... I kind of want to want to read fiction. And we were talking about this the other day and mm-hmm. whether or not it's analogous to physical exercise or starting anything new where you just have to get over the initial hump. Just for me, yeah. that hump has lasted 32 years. And uh, I just need to get through that gap of like being methodical about staying with something that I perhaps finally, I find less enjoyable than it should be. Um, but the weird thing is, a lot like physical exercise, is that once I'm in it, once I'm in the yeah. groove, it's so rewarding. It's something that benefits me in every way every way imaginable. Um, and I wish I did more of it. It's just, I, I for some reason, I come, I come up against these stumbling blocks and I, and I never get back to fiction. But I would argue I'm a relatively sensitive man. So I, <laughs> sensitive you know, person. Sensitive person. So I... I I want to imbibe these things. I just don't know how. What's really interesting is that you and I have the precise same conversations about the gym and about uh, book reading in that I do a lot of book reading and want and think that you'd benefit more from it. And Mm. therefore, I'm encouraging you. I'm always like, you know what? Reading is a muscle and you shouldn't start on the heaviest kind of weight. You should start with, you know, kind of commercial, enjoyable stuff that's made to be easy to read. And then you work your way up to the heavier stuff. And then... 
in the same day you will have the conversation with me where you're like you know you don't hate the gym you're just not doing it properly and it's just Start like manageable uh, and then yeah. build up to something and it will just be a seamless yeah, yeah, yeah. reading and the gym is the same we slip into the gender roles so easily, yeah. yeah don't we right. but I think I mean based on my viewing of you enjoying this book I feel like this book has cracked it for you yeah so hang on let's not let's, this isn't why it was me here I bloody love the signature of all things and I will fucking defend Liz Gilbert against all comers if you hate you pray love and you're going to just trash her because of that then I've seen interviews where people have talked about her pushing like completely dismissed her as an artist at that point in her career they've never read anything before and they've not read anything since but because of Eat Pray Love yeah, and, 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 and many of them haven't version. even read Pray Love. They've just seen yeah, the Julia Roberts movie, which yeah. sucked. And yep. yeah, um, to me, like, we had this conversation a, long, a few years ago where you were like, right, like, if I were to read any book and love it, which would you yes. would be? It would be The Signature of All Things. And I said that firstly because it's my favorite book. So it was that selfish thing. Mm. And not a, lot, not a huge amount of people that I know have, have read it. And I just want to have more people to talk about my favorite book with. Mm. And second of all, um, of the kind of stuff that you do enjoy, you're like a big Moby Dick man. <laughs> um, and like you, you love that book and you love sort of like the Victorian whaling adventure isn't that kind of deal. You'd read it in the you, heart of the yeah, sea in like a day. Sure, you made sure you smuggled in whaling sailing ships and an yeah. almost a sinking vessel and a cool dog. So you ticked, <laughs> off cool a few, dog. you ticked off a few of the five things I need, yeah. Yeah, so it's very much, it's kind of um, sort of the Trojan woman's book, really. Mm. And, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. Um, I'm going to get into the plot summary first, just so everybody can catch up to where we are. So, Alma Whitaker is a Victorian lady botanist living in Whiteacre, a Pennsylvanian mansion house owned by her adventurer father, Henry Whitaker. Alma's life is driven by the desire for knowledge and discovery, but experiences severe isolation until she meets and falls in love with Ambrose Pike, a mysterious man who visits her house when she's already in her late 40s. Her eventual marriage to Ambrose leads her on a global quest to find out the truth about life and human nature itself. Um, It was a real struggle to write this plot summary because what it is, it's just like... The story of a, a remarkable, if homely and not that wild living for most of her life, woman. And you just you just meet her the day she's born. And then literally Gilbert, Gilbert says, but, you know, nothing happens to kids that is interesting for at least 10 years. So mm. I'm going to divert you and talk about her father's life instead. And it's so fucking smart because what it is it's like you get this like a hundred pages of this swashbuckling man mm-hmm. that feels like such like a classic adventurer boys novel of this this guy who's like born in like a shitty part of London in the early 18th century or whatever and uh, he smuggles plants out of Kew Gardens and then he sells them to like roving botanists and we join him when he's almost being hung hanged he, yes. he's about to be hanged and he's begging for his life off Joseph Banks who I didn't know about until I read Signature of All Things but he apparently was a famous botanist slash venture, adventurer discoverer mm-hmm. in the 1700s and he's begging for his life and uh he manages to worm his way out of it by yeah. just being quick-witted and talking around Joseph Banks and he gives him a job and pops him on his adventure on his, on his whaling vessel with Captain Cook and he sails the seven seas. Um, and it's this fantastic thing where it is the classic male adventurer story, right? And it's so exciting and he's so exciting to be I, with. I wanted to be him within 20 pages. It, you yeah. cannot... He's just an amazing character. And I caught an interview with Liz Gilbert who said... She wrote so much of him just because she liked him so much. And she yeah. said she got she she got scared after she'd written the first section of the book. Actually, the first thing she wrote was the last, very last line. But then she went back to the start 
and wrote Henry. And she said she got scared towards the end of that section because she was like, holy shit, right, okay, Alma, you've got to bring it because your yeah. dad is entertaining as fuck. <laughs> so you have to step up now. And she was like, had this weird fear. She was like, was scared of the dad she created. <laughs> That's so interesting. I didn't know that. And like, what, 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 but what I do know about Liz Gilbert and what I've said about her on this, and she is my, I'm not going to make any bones about it. She is my favorite living writer. Mm. And I, because she is rigorous and intellectual but also kind of a kind of a kooky art teacher weirdo who will just be like follow your bliss do you know what I mean she has that softness and that rigour and um, what I do know about her is that the beginning of her career was very much about following Henry Whittaker's around the world like she wrote a uh a non-fiction book that was uh, nominated for a National Book Award called The Last American Man where she followed this guy who just was the, la- the last kind of frontier man who was living this really rustic lifestyle in, out in the woods just for a year and she just followed him and she did that. She is fascinated by sort of strong macho men and like her early writing was compared to Hemingway and stuff. Was there something cynical in that from her in that she wanted to attract a different kind of audience? She was like maybe understood her own personal proclivities to be like... I don't think it's unfair to say she's kind of a primary school teacher, has a kind of like a, a wonderful kindness to her where she just wants yeah. to like birth and she wants, wants the best for everyone. She it does. Can actually get a bit cloying. Like it if you can. Listen, if you listen to enough Big Magic, it pisses you off. Like the <laughs> podcast, you can only listen to like one and a half episodes at a time before it's, you want to be like, get Henry in the room and be like, read this woman some common sense, God damn it. But, you know, if you're feeling as anyone in the creative fields does, you know, goes through periods, sometimes months in a, months at a time, where you just need the arm around the shoulder and you need coaxing. You don't need the whip. You need, you know, what's the opposite of a whip? Um, you need that kindness to, to bring something out of you. She's the go-to. Yeah. And that's what her calling is. And so I wonder if early in her career she was like, okay, I'm going to get hammered if I just be this so I'm actually going to go after the opposite of myself is that do you think she I don't that? know I like I, I honestly can't can't answer to that at all but I do know that like her work has gotten has started off in a very quote unquote masculine place and, and has arrived in a very feminine place mm. um there's a bit from the Henry Whitaker chapters that I was rereading today. And when I say this is my favorite book, I mean it in the same way that like, you know, when your favorite film comes on TV and you might not even call it your favorite film to yourself and you might not even know why you like it so much. <laughs> like, I think like The Mummy, The Mummy with Brendan <laughs> Fraser is good. When it comes on and you're like, and you kind of are doing something else, maybe you're ironing or on your way to a different job and it comes on TV and you're like, I'm just going to watch this bit. And then you're just like, standing there watching the whole thing and that's how I experience this book every time I pick it up I I read it when it came out and I've read it maybe five or six times since I just love it Mm. Um, but there's a bit in the I hope this isn't too you know self-indulgent but there's a bit in the Henry Whitaker chapters that's like oh maybe part of the reason why I love this book is because I live with someone who is a little like this (laughs) (laughs) okay disclaimer I have no idea what she's about to read (laughs) Um, so there's this bit where he, um, Henry, after all of his years of adventuring, um, he goes and meets Joseph Banks, who is kind of his patroner, um, and he has this big idea for a, a plant thing he's discovered. I can't quite remember what it it's, is now. Uh, it's, if I remember rightly, Henry Whitaker has this dastardly plan to, sh- uh, I think it's to go to India or somewhere far away that's a lot of effort and to switch plantations to a certain kind of synchona tree or something like that. And that's, again, the brilliance of this book is there is a lot of 
scientific detail this was and nominated. historical it was detail. No, I found out this was nominated for a scientific award. It's really? the only book that year that there was is fiction. That, that. so much science. And again, I'm not a big fan of science yeah. at all. At, yeah. at all. Or naturalism. Or plants. I don't give a fuck about plants. <laughs> and my favourite book is about a lady botanist and there is plant detail. But the thing is, is that you can sort of... Gilbert writes in a way that you can, if you're not in the mood to read about plants, you can just scan over it. Or, but, but also there's so many beautiful bits about botany and plant life that are analogous to the characters that it makes it really exciting as well. Yeah, it is rewarding to find the similarities between the mosses and the orchids and the different characters. Um, we'll get to yeah. that. But like the plants, you know, are a are central th- character. They're a theme to the book as Mother Nature and, you know. Yeah. Anyway, please so, read this, so this section. So this bit, you're actually sweating. You're like, what I'm, does, I, my, arms what are does on the rest my girlfriend of the see in me? <laughs> um, so um, he's having this meeting with his... Um, the, the man who he sponsors all of his adventures and he's got this great plan and it's not going entirely well. <laughs> to be fair to Henry, his head was not entirely lucid. He had been alone for many years in a remote forest and a young man in the forest become can, and a young man in the forest be, can become a dangerously unfettered thinker. Henry had discussed this topic with Banks so many times already in his mind that he was impatient now with the actual conversation. In Henry's imagination, everything was already arranged and already successful. In Henry's mind, there was only one possible outcome. Banks would now welcome the idea as brilliant, introduce Henry to the proper administrators at the East India Company, clear all permissions, secure all funding and proceed, ideally by tomorrow afternoon, with this ambitious project. In Henry's dreams, the Chicona plantation was already growing in the Himalayas. He was already the glittering wealthy man whom Joseph Banks had once promised he might become, and he had already been welcomed as gentleman in, into the embrace of London society. Most of all, Henry had allowed himself to believe that he and Joseph Banks had already regarded each other as dear and intimate friends. And I feel like I just slandered you a bit there. You didn't slander me. I was thinking about all the meetings I had in the past with my line managers where I thought, this plan is amazing. <laughs> I'm not going to get one promotion. I'm going to get triple promotions and everyone's going to walk through the room and shake my hand. And as I'm said, whatever plan is in my mind, the face of the person on the other side of the table goes from mildly bemused to annoyed to very clearly wishing I would stop the plan now. And so you've just savaged me. But... But you get it. I'm in my mind. I'm in like four meetings I've had in the past five years, and I'm getting all hot here. Yeah, <laughs> because you are, and this is you know what I love about you is that you are a gloriously unfettered thinker, <laughs> and you are the person who has already had like half a conversation in their head, and then will just announce a line of that conversation to me, and I'm just like, I guess, I guess we're doing this now, <laughs> which is you know very challenging. <laughs> I love it. I, I apologise you know, for the rest of our lives. <laughs> no, it's it's like, um, yeah, that that is what it's like. You um, uh, and a few years ago, I carried a backpack around with a laptop and literally a Manila folder full of post-it notes. Mm-hmm. Remember that of bag? unfettered thoughts. I remember the post-it notes. thoughts, and the bag was stolen from me with the laptop and I was as annoyed about the post-its as I was about the laptop which cost a fair amount of money and the laptop was insured the post-its were not and I, I don't know what was on those post-its because I never read them I just collected them for a long long time yeah. <laughs> and actually since then my life kind of got better since yeah. I lost the post-it notes so I, I hate to draw like f- foolish comparisons but since losing the post-it notes I have been lighter in my mind <laughs> so yeah 
Um, yeah, the, the post-it notes were your Joseph Banks. And once you kind of hacked off that dead wood, you were able to yeah. go forth. Um, so Henry Whitaker goes on and he has, he's, yeah, again, starts off life as this sort of nothing and then becomes an adventurer and then becomes a millionaire um, yeah. because he's able to trade on the botany trade. And uh, There's a brilliant scene, actually, at the end of that section where Joseph Banks laughs so hard that he doesn't even notice that Henry Whitaker has left the room yeah. and he doesn't respond to him. And Henry's sort of completely unshaken. He just knows he's right yeah. and leaves the room. His hero is laughing at him so much that he for almost falls over because his idea is so insane. He leaves the room and does the idea and becomes a millionaire. <laughs> and, and also has a lifelong rivalry with Q Gardens. <laughs> like this guy, this guy lives until his 90s and he never gives up on despising Q Gardens, which to me is the funniest thing in the world. <laughs> it's like it's like the most like child-friendly, we're both Londoners, and like most child-friendly, most wonderful, most softest place you could bring someone on a day out. Like you bring your nan there on a day out if she was visiting London. And it's Henry Whitaker's biggest enemy. <laughs> it's so much fun. It's always it's always fun to just hear about characters that never let it go. Either. Yeah, like, it's Mar- so Mar- much like, fun. <laughs> Morrissey's a knob, but the idea that he can still be angry that someone talked down to him on a bus in Oldham in like the early eighties is yeah. kind of sweet. Like he's like, I'm going to get her back. It's like you've won, mate. You've won. You've let won. it go. <laughs> like yeah, and th- so then like we get once Henry grows up, becomes a millionaire, start like marries um his wife. Beatrix, who you're a big fan of, mm-hmm. um, who is this very kind of solid Dutch woman who is mm. just pragmatism all the way through, pragmatism and good Lutheran teaching the whole way through. Um, and then they have Alma and they have this huge house in Pennsylvania and they have this daughter who from the moment she's born has like the most magical childhood you could imagine, right? Mm. Yeah. Like n- not not like, it's not like she's living in fucking Charlie Chuck and the Charlie Chuck factory. Like she's like, it's not like there's this unfettered imagination and joy everywhere. It's that she, they have, she has quite strict parents, but they have a respect for her. It's strange because throughout the book, she she um, always evaluates how her life is going. A, a couple of times yeah. she sort of takes the measure of where she is in her life and can she consider herself a failure? Is she a success? Yeah. How does she fit in with what she has done versus what she wished she'd done? Which makes it seem not like an historic novel. Right. Because you always think when you read about characters from history or the past or whatever, even if they're fictional, that like they're always living their life in like the past tense because they're in the in history. And it almost feels like it's done and they're running along a track where they know where the ending is. But obviously we don't know when we leave the studio what's going to happen. So it it feels whilst you're tracking the life of a very privileged woman from birth to almost her death you at every moment feel like it's a completely contemporaneous story and that you're with her along every step of the way. And you never feel like it's done and it always feels up in the air and unsettled. And the idea of her privilege, or what I was going to say, is that it's strange that you can empathise with this woman because she's plain, (laughs) incredibly privileged, does what her parents tell her for most of her life uh, is out and sort of shoes away all of her problems, be it friends or whatever, and we'll get to all that stuff. Yeah. Um, but yet you completely sympathise with her and you want the best from her and you want her to be an amazing success and it's actually up in the air whether or not she is at all in her life. But yet you love her and you want the best for her. So it's a weird... It's and, a, and she's not very lovable. Like she's not... 
the, this, she's a very intelligent woman. She's not this great wit. Like she's not this amazing friend. She's not. She, she she's, she's kind a fairly of all distant, those things. She takes the measure of things. She's a scientist. Yeah. yeah, she's a scientist. She kind of views everything through that slightly stilted. What does it all mean? What can I get from this? She never throws herself over to something, and when she does, she gets blown back every time. Yeah. So every time she finally gives up that kind of scientific center of her life. It ends up failing. <laughs> it, it's so true. She clings to rigor and logic so much, and whenever she sort of says to herself, "Do you know what? Fuck it. I can. I yeah. can live like a normal person." It blows up in her face. Yeah, a few times in the novel where you can feel her like trying to be something else. Yeah, she's she's trying to pull back. Like, no, no, Beatrix wouldn't like this. Or no, I'm not. I feel upended here. I can't go with Ambrose. I can't do whatever. Yeah. And then the moment she get, finally gives herself over, and it's like this. This yearning that she that she wants to actually give up the scientific center, it blows up in her face. Yeah, and she has to go back to it. But you keep telling yourself throughout the novel, this is an incredibly privileged woman. She's had everything she's ever wanted. Yeah, like, you know, she has the best life of anyone she knows as well. Because as she grows up, a lot of the people she's close to, like um, like yeah. her, her dear friend Retta Snow, who. We'll talk a little bit more in a minute, but um, is like this lovely girl who's you know has a severe mental illness and ends up in a in an asylum and her her sister has a quite unhappy life and she's just kind of like has the best life of anyone she knows and, and yet there's this emptiness in it you know and you hear only through glances about the tragedies and catastrophes of other people prudence comes into alma's life through a double murder or a murder suicide yeah um so tell us who prudence is okay so find prudence is the adopted sister of Alma. Mm-hmm. Um, she was a gardener. I think it's a gardener. A yeah. gardener's um, daughter. Yeah. Um, and Originally the, called Polly. Oh, I forgot that. Yeah. yeah, originally called Polly. And the father murdered the mother in some kind of jealous rage. Yeah, because uh, she murder. was this kind of promiscuous yes. woman who was fucking everybody. Yes. Oh, yeah, she's a... She, yeah, she's, is, she a, is she a hooker? Or she no, was, I think she was just putting it about... Right, fine. It's, you know, it's, it was the time... <laughs> Yeah, what are you gonna do? Um, so, so she comes into she comes into their life, and instantly, instantly Alma's life changes. We probably skipped ahead a little bit here, but like yeah. instantly, Alma's life has changed because Prudence is everything she isn't, and she knows that from the age of how old is she She's, eight? Something seven? Yeah, so it's 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 that kind of eight to ten level. That bracket, level, yeah. actually, that level where as a sibling, you start to realize you're part of a family unit and you're measuring yeah. yourself against other people and there are actually expectations and there are things you're good at and there are things you're not good at. You recognize people around you get compliments for their looks and you don't. And there's a, yeah. you start, you're starting to learn your limits and prudence comes into Alma's life just at the moment where everything's going swimmingly. The bit going swimmingly is in a wonderful section of the book called The Plum of Whiteacre. Yes. And that's what... Um, Henry nicknames Alma Plum. You hear that nickname come out through the book, um, but it's introduced here, and it's such a sweet and lovely... Yeah, it's a, it's a, a gorgeous scene. And so while you find it, I'm going to just set it up a little bit. Uh, Henry is uh, becomes famous in his kind of midlife um, for being this patron and inviting fascinating people to dinner. And uh, Alma because her parents don't really believe in talking down to children or thinking that there are children's activities that are just for kids, they always have her at the dinner table, but she, not in that kind of cloying way, just like they expect her to behave like an adult does. So she's often always the only child in adult situations. And what happens is they, they, he invites this astrologer over. They have this big bowl because he has this new telescope and they have this sort of garden party where the astrologer decides to arrange a waltz 
through the solar system and the design of the solar system. And that's where you're going to read from. And so, yeah, so Alma, throughout the whole uh, of her childhood, is desperate to impress her father and only occasionally does... And who wouldn't want to impress him? I want to impress him. Yeah, he only occasionally does he pay any attention. And then this is one of those moments where everyone's had this in their childhood where the attention's all on them and they just turn the situation and it's amazing. Yeah. Okay. The orchestra struck up again, and this landscape of heavenly bodies took on the appearance of the most strange and beautiful waltz the good people of Philadelphia had ever seen. Henry, the Sun King, stood beaming at the centre of it all, his hair the colour of flame, while men large and small revolved all around him, and women circled around the men. Clusters of unmarried girls sparkled in the outermost corners of the universe, distant as unknown galaxies. Ponticilli, that's the name of the astronomer, Ponticilli climbed atop a high garden wall and swayed precariously there, conducting and commanding the entire tableau, crying across the night, Stay at your velocity, men! Do not abandon your trajectory, ladies! Alma wanted to be in it. She had never before seen anything so thrilling. She had never before been, ta- been awake this late, except after nightmares, but she had somehow been forgotten in all the merriment. She was the only child in attendance, as she had been for all her life, the only child in attendance. She ran over to the garden wall and cried up to the dangerously unstable maestro Ponticilli, Put me in it, sir! The Italian peered down from high on his perch, troubled himself to try to focus his eyes. Who was this child? He might have dismissed her entirely, but then Henry bellowed from the centre of the solar system, Give the girl a place! Ponticilli shrugged. You are a comet! He called down to Alma, while still making a pretense of conducting the universe with one waving arm. What does a comet do, sir? You fly about in all directions, the Italian commanded. And so she did. She propelled herself into the midst of the planets, ducking and swivelling through everyone's orbits, scuttling and twirling, the ribbon unfurling from her hair. Wherever she neared her father, he would cry, Not so close to me, Plum, or you'll burn to cinders! and he would push her away from his fiery, combustible self, impelling her to run in another direction. Astonishingly, at some point, a sputtering torch was thrust into her hands. Alma did not, did not see who gave it to her. She had never before been entrusted with fire. The torch spit sparks and sent chunks of flaming tar spinning into the air behind her as she bolted across the cosmos, the only body in the heavens who was not held to a strict elliptical path. Nobody stopped her. She was a comet. She did not know that she was not flying. Oh, that is so lovely. It's so lovely. Oh, that's. <laughs> I just love her so much. I just love. I'm genuinely tearing up. I ju- I just love her so much. And what I also love about that scene is, um, it is kind of a facsimile for her entire character and the entire novel because the novel is the character and the character is the novel. Mm. Um, of this thing of like, she's. She doesn't have a place in society Mm. because she's an unmarried woman who doesn't have any children, Mm -hmm. who doesn't look right and who doesn't behave the way society tells people that they should behave or women should behave. And she does fly about in all directions. Do you know what I mean? She's this like brilliant, brilliant scholar who can't be with normal people. She's too smart to be with normal people. Oddly... The, or ironically, the only way she could end up doing the stuff she wishes to do with her life, which is to be a scientist with access to these things, with enormous wealth and and all this privilege, is... It, it is to be untethered kind of thing, right? Although... Because like, if she were to get... There's, there's even a bit where um, her friend Retta Snow gets married and then it says, like, 
uh, and it became clear to Retta that she was not suited for adult or married life and she's like oh she can't do all these things and that's true because it's this historical novel once you become a married woman there are things you cannot do or that are seen as unseemly to do yeah and and in, in that period of history the only way you can end up being a scientist is to be an unmarried woman of yeah. wealth so whilst she is untethered that actually allows her to be who she wishes to be so it's this yeah. kind of like double bind where she can she's not a mother she has no access to quote unquote real society but that does allow her to play with moss which is what yeah. she loves to do <laughs> It's almost like Elizabeth Gilbert was it was like this weird flex she was doing. She was like, I'm gonna take like such a boring character who studies a boring thing and I'm gonna make it the most fascinating, rollicking novel you've ever read. And yeah. um, so she's um her her great love is botany, her great love within that love is moss. She studies moss for 30 years. And uh, there's a bit where she says, like, you know, why moss? Why does she love moss so much? Why does she have kind of disdain for flowers? And the simple thing is like, well, moss is ugly. It doesn't look no one cares about it, but it's sort of and it doesn't it doesn't um reproduce. It doesn't like have this sort of relationship with other plants of pollinization all that kind of stuff it doesn't have that sort of sexiness that other plants have yeah. but what it does do is that it can kind of claim stone over 10 years and she often says like I'm not living in human time I'm living in moss in time, moss time. And which it, eat, it literally eats rock as food yeah. it's incredibly hardy it's slow it can survive on ships. It actually is used for pack. It's so um, it has so much stamina as a plant that it is actually used for packing yeah. other plants on ships. And you can put it in water and it will grow again after like years. Yeah. And she's fascinated by that, and she can't believe. And she finds a. She niche. sees herself in it. It's very. Yeah. It's, it seems very obvious, but she is the moss, mm. you know. Mm. And it's this like she, she's not. She she's described multiple times as plain. She's, she's just called ugly, very even. plain, ugly, forgettable. I think at one point Henry Whitaker literally says, when comparing um, Prudence, her and who's Prudence, very beautiful. Who's very, oh, we didn't say this actually. Prudence mm. is extraordinary. The beauty of Philadelphia. Yeah. In fact, scientists who visit Henry Whitaker, which actually happens all the time, the dinner table, by the way, we should say, the yeah. dinner table at, at Whitaker is like the best dinner table ever. <laughs> <laughs> you want to be around the dinner table. Anyway, scientists visit to just to, just to, to see Prudence. Yeah. They, they, they hear of her great beauty. And Alma walks into the room when one of the daughters is summoned by a scientist. She walks in and says, oh, no, not this one. I wanted the pretty one. And then Alma's just standing there. Prudence is then summoned. And yeah. then Henry says, oh, uh, what does he say? Um, the plain one is worth 10 of the pretty one. Yeah. Or like and then so he, what he manages to do is push both his daughters <laughs> under the bus in one go. <laughs> It's like, what could you possibly say to make this worse, Henry? Oh, that's the thing. <laughs> oh, and, and like there's this thing of like... Just dashed it, off. It, it would take Alma years to realise that that comment wounded Prudence as much as it wounded her. Do you yeah, know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And, and this thing of like the, the sections where they're growing up together are so affecting um, because... And they're very polite to one another. And, and you know, I think it must be that thing of like the fact that Prudence is adopted into the family later. And this is a brilliant scene where her mother is murdered, as we said earlier. Mm -hmm. And um, her Alma's mother 
uh, who is, uh, I mean, this, this all happens on their ground, so they feel the responsibility to take in this child. Yeah, that's the reason they take her on. It isn't a charitable act. It's almost, they almost feel responsibility as employers to, to do yeah, it. Yeah, to take this girl on. And this, um, they see, they, they look at this like 10-year-old girl who's already ravishingly beautiful. And they look at like all these kind of laborers around them. And it says like, um, Hanukkah de Groot, who's the, ha- the, the, the Dutch woman who sort of... Secret best character. Yeah. Secret best <laughs> character, who sort of looks after the whole ha- household. And Beatrix's mother, or... And Alma's mother, Be- and Alma's mother Beatrix, they have this instinct where they're like, and they knew, like, not out of politeness, not out of courtesy, not out of anything else, but the female instinct to protect a weaker female in the, from things in the night. Mm. And there's a thing of like, if we don't take this child in, she's gonna be passed around, mm. like, whatever. Mm. And and that's the pretext for Prudence's existence. And Prudence reacts against that existence by just becoming the most prudent person. She possibly can be. She is comp- incredibly tightly wound. She like it's so interesting because Alma is the most the most the brightest woman of her generation, and she can't understand her own sister. There's, which one, is, there's one moment when Prudence actually speaks up at dinner when speaking about slavery, yeah, um, and relationships of blacks to whites. Obviously, this is the early 1800s, and yeah. so this this is actually a hot topic of conversation, abolition, um, and. And all of that. And Prudence once, I think one time she speaks up at dinner to shout yeah. someone down on their views about racism. Yeah. And Alma is like, cannot believe it. She's like stunned. The one time she speaks is actually a signal a signal for what she's going to do with the rest of her life yeah. in the book. But the fact that they're different in every way as sisters, they could not be more opposite. Yeah. One is what sounds like six foot. Yeah. <laughs> Alma's a yeah. huge woman. Alma's like a huge lady, like six foot, all just like big strapping woman, frizzy, frizzy ginger hair that's all over the place, yeah. a kind of this huge nose, the very ungainly features. Like yeah. she, and Prudence Gilbert is a, not a, kind a, about Prudence how she describes her. a walking painting, and, yeah. um, people, which people comment on. And uh, Alma's very loud. Prudence says nothing. Uh, one is all like yearning feeling inside and science and one is all very religious and... Uh, centered on faith um, but actually is very suspicious of feelings and denies herself everything yeah uh, and I, actually I I think we both have really close relationships with our siblings and um, so I I've never really understood those sibling environments where people can go a year and a half without speaking to their brother yeah. who they see at gatherings it's not like they don't get on it's just yeah, that yeah. It, or it's not that they don't see each other it's just that they don't speak that's super alien to me because yeah. you know I I have more reason than a lot of people to ignore my brother. Love you, Ash. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, I just feel that sort of a need to protect someone uh, or just that, that, that sibling bond. And when, when I read this was the first time I think I truly understood what it must be like to, to have someone so close to you and yet feel like they're a million, million miles away. And it's part of the reason why their friendship with Red as Snow becomes so important because yeah. it's, it's said so beautifully. And like again, as you say, I'm close to my siblings as well. But that thing of like they can only behave as though they are girls when they are with this very flighty, lovely, fun, effervescent woman. Do you mm, mean they mm. like? And it's like they, when the three of them together, it's like, oh, we should all go to the picture show and do this stuff. And like they both like we're play all... act. They both play up to Retta. They both want, they both want. Yeah. One comes from one side. One comes from the other. They both want to be Retta's just the light that sparks everything on but when yeah. she's not in the room 
it, it's oh, like just, the love disappears. The, the magic goes. Retta is like this bright burning light. And that when she's gone, they just don't know how to act and they're and shuffling around each other. Any, it might not be with your siblings, but everyone has had that kind of relationship oh God, yeah. with somebody, yeah, 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 you know, yeah. of like, I don't know how to make sense of you out of the context of either this work situation. Yeah, it's, or, it could be anything. It doesn't yeah. just have to be drinking or partying. It could yeah. be work. It could be there's a strict hierarchy in place and you, you love that hierarchy. And I love being either on top or, be- or beneath, you yeah, know. And, yeah. and then when you're taking out of that context, it's like seeing a parent in, sorry, it's like seeing one of your teachers in Tesco or something. You're like, I don't like it. I oh can't deal God. with this. I re- <laughs> this is a total non sequitur. I remember a few years and years ago, long before we were together, um, I had this job where uh, the guy who worked on reception, we used to have this like five minute flirt every day. Right. And neither one of us was really that interested in each other, but right. it was just like what we did and it kept our days interesting. Yeah, yeah. And then I remember one day we happened to be on the same tube together. Oh my God. And it ruined everything. <laughs> and he was, like, and I was like, oh, so you, do you live near Bromley? He's like, no, I'm just uh, visiting my mom. I'm like, oh, oh do you like your it. mom? Oh, <laughs> and it was, ruined. and we never really spoke again after that. Oh, it's ruined. The context had been ruined. The fantasy's gone. <laughs> yeah. I love you at arm's length. Yeah. <laughs> um, the thing I love the most about Prudence and the inclusion of Prudence in this novel is, um, so Prudence goes on to, and the foreshadowing is there. And what I love as well about how this is written is that like the the characters that these people are as children, it makes sense who they become as adults. Do you know mm. what I mean? In, but it allows for natural growth. It's not just like, oh, this person was a greedy child and they became a selfish adult. It's yeah. like, it's so shaded and nuanced. Um, so um, Prudence goes on to uh, become a, very dedicated abolitionist. She um, gets married to like their tutor. Arthur Dixon. Arthur, Arthur Dixon, who I remember so little about because there's so little about on the page because again, Alma is like, this guy sucks. Yeah, Han- Henry Henry thinks he's a weirdo, a useful but weird man. Yeah. And he's almost written out at one point. He's just like this strange teacher that comes in and you feel like this is going to be the girl's first introduction. Because I think he's about eight to ten years older than them. Yeah. So it's that first kind of, oh, you're nine and I'm 19 and like, I'm 19 so nothing's going on here. But if you're a girl, especially if you're a girl, I imagine, yeah. you want to play up to that older man in the room. And there's even a thing the where, where Beatrix like interviews tutors and she's like, this is the most sexless one I can find. <laughs> and Prudence still <laughs> marries you, him. That's what you would do. That's good parenting. Beatrix is the Beatrix, perfect parent. We often talk about like uh, you and I don't have immediate uh, plans to have children but if we do have children we don't want children we want Whitaker children <laughs> because their parenting is so on point we, we, I, actually I'm going to say I don't want Whitaker children I just want to be a Whitaker parent yeah. just, this is the parenting manual anyone out there who's thinking about becoming a parent or perhaps is about to become one yeah. read the signature of all things please because just even those first chapters yes. of, of the kids of them as kids is like that's how you parent a fucking kid yeah my kid will be silent at the dinner table but it's good for her and if she yeah. wants to step up then she will if she doesn't, well, that's her issue. Yeah. <laughs> that's good yeah. parenting. It is. And it's just like so no nonsense. And it's so like Dutch, you know, so severe and so Dutch, but loving. Um, did you send me that? Did you make me read this for that reason? Are you going to like ask to have kids with me soon? You're just testing me to see if I passed the Beatrix test. Yeah. <laughs> that's, uh, yeah, this is, a, that's, this is how the conversation begins on this <laughs> podcast. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com So Prudence goes up into being this abolitionist. Um, who she, she marries Arthur Dixon. She gives away all of her fortune, which is considerable, even though she's, you know, the adopted kid, um, to... Uh, abolitionist causes which is incredibly noble um, she is at one point she she's given so much money away that a newspaper interviews her and it's kind of the first anybody finds out about that she's you know given such a huge wealth away she she has like six children she raises them all incredibly none, 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 severely are all of them hers or some of them adopted I can't remember she has six children of her own but then she takes in like a lot of black kids as well yeah and there's she runs a school that yeah is over, she's, an, she's the noblest character in the world and what's so great is that like in another book from a less interesting writer this would be a book about Prudence Whitaker and how the most beautiful woman of her generation also be went on to become the most famous abolitionist. Do you yeah, know what I mean? Yeah. Because that's a worthy cause. It's the right side of history. It's a fascinating character. She's the, the victim of this murder-suicide. That's how she's coming into this world. And then she goes on to these great things. But we only see her through Alma's eyes. And in Alma's eyes, it's a bit embarrassing. It's, you know, it's she's em- a bit embarrassed by the whole thing. She's embarrassed by it. She's spoken about it now uh, as if people who are super into climate change debates bring them up at every moment or like vegans that actually yeah. want to like force their issues onto you are treated today and it's yeah. um, it's kind of like a yeah okay prudence like you know I mean she's kind of allows her to say her bit but she yeah. knows deep down that she's denying herself things and why would she why would she deny herself? She has access to all this money and all this opportunity and yet she lives like this because she wants to be seen as this godly woman and she yeah. wants to prove things to someone else. Why? Who is she trying to prove it to? She's trying to prove it to Henry. She's trying to prove it to Beatrix. Well, Beatrix isn't here anymore because she's died. So it's just like... And there's this thing where it's like, you know, she says in... She even... Prudence says in this in this newspaper interview, she's like, oh, um, this this family, this black family who live next door to us, um, I don't go, I don't have anything that they don't have kind of thing. And that's a point of pride for her. Yeah. And Alma's reading this being like, uh, I think, I don't think this family care that you're uh, suffering as much as they are. I think they would probably prefer your money. <laughs> like they would prefer if you maybe just bought them nice. She's like, oh, um, this this family only eat bread and molasses, so I only eat bread and molasses. Which is the thing. Like you've Prudence, you've come from it, this manor it's house. It's at that point where everyone just almost uses it as a stick to beat her. Really, like, yeah. The family, they just sort of roll their eyes at her. Like, oh my yeah. god, she's seriously because it feels here. like posturing. And if that article came out today in, with the, with the contemporary issue, we would feel the same way. It's like yep. obviously your your instincts are. Correct. This is a beautiful cause. Like this is the most worthy cause that you could go for. Again, like climate change today. Mm-hmm. Um, but you are using this to stroke your own vanity, yes. and you think no one can see, and yeah. we do. Yeah, you know? she's like the she's the biggest virtue signaler of the. She 1800s. is. She's Twitter. <laughs> Prudence is Twitter. But the thing about the whole issue with Prudence that the bit the, that issue resonates with me a lot, and something I still am wrestling with, which is. Alma might actually be 
one of the most selfish characters I've ever read because she yeah. casts all her problems away. She, I mean, we've not talked about Ambrose yet, but she forces, for, she literally sends him across the other side of the world. Yeah. She sort of pr- promises to see Retta Snow and then just sort of forgets about her because she's a hassle. Um, yeah. Prudence is, like you said, posturing and living in squalor and she kind of just forgets about her. Um, she sticks around under daddy's wing until he dies. Mm-hmm. She kind of does what she's told. But the whole time it's this like strong, centered, scientific woman that wants to just do nice things with Moss and be well regarded yeah. in the scientific community. But really the, the the pressing issues, the issues of family and home and love, she kind of drops the ball again and again and again. Yeah. And I can't I was waiting for the resolution whereby there is this big moment where the Civil War is mentioned and abolition and slavery. And it's done in a paragraph. I yeah, thought the book yeah. was going to build towards that, and it's done in a I think because it's two if sentences. If you're reading an American novel written yeah. in the 1800s, you're, wait- you're waiting for you're the for the waiting drop, for right? The yeah, you know, it's already be done. It's already done the two beats. Wait for the simple yeah. crash, and it it's just a whisper. And I was like, huh? I just right? stopped reading. I was like, what have I missed? I skimmed back a couple of chat and pages. There's this there's this great moment where like you really get a sense of how selfish Alma actually is because she's she's um, saying after that article comes out and she's like um. Oh, yes, obviously, you know, Alma thought that slavery was abhorrent and she would never support it. But at the same time, you know, there are many terrible things happening in the world. And also Alma didn't consider herself as really living in the world. She was living in Moss time. And, you know, she couldn't look after her father's business affairs and study Moss and be an abolitionist. So Prudence can just have that. You know what I mean? And it's so like, it's so how human brains work, you know? Yeah, It's it's a believable tussle where the weight of history hasn't fully landed on everyone yet. And it's an imbalance between people who have mild competition between them and they sort of dig their heels in. Alma could give it all up and say abolition is actually the thing I need to be doing here. I have the opportunity, the time and the wealth to do so. But it would mean giving in. And Henry is taught not to do that. So that, who the fuck doesn't, who hasn't been there where you dig your heels in deeper because you don't want to lose face or you feel like this is a, I would have to give, I'd have to give away three arguments I've had in the last year with this person and I'm not going to do that. And that's how right? people go decades. But it's a thing and people, and, and I'm sure people will, will, less enlightened readers or whatever, will read it and be like, God, isn't she a prick for not getting involved in anti-slavery? It's like, and I'm here, 2019, like exactly. I didn't go to one Extinction Rebellion yeah, thing yeah. and I believe heartily that in exactly the climate emergency. Do you know what I mean? Exactly what I thought when I was reading it. It was, it's an issue we all need to be involved in, but like, you know, I don't have the time. I have yeah. to study. There's <laughs> rocks I have to... I, there's fonts back at the office that need attending to. You know what I mean? It's like... So uh, that bit for me, I'm still wrestling with that and what that means, you know, to yeah, cast off... Yeah, it's culpability. Because lo- it's, it's not like she didn't love Retta. She loved Retta. Yeah. She loved Ambrose. She wished the best for him. But I think we should talk about Ambrose before we run out of time entirely, by the way, because he's a really important part of the book. And we are running out of time, my oh, God. Sorry, we've, we've waffled a lot, so we skim here. Um, no, let's, so let, tell me who Ambrose is. So Ambrose is this, oh, wow. Okay, so Ambrose is this breath of fresh air that comes into uh, to Alma's life. When she's 48. When she's 48. Post-menopausal. There's been a 20-year time jump at some point in between yeah. uh, the introduction to Prudence and this, which was stunned me because I was waiting for this book to spend most of the time in Alma's 30s, and it just jumps 26 yeah. years. And I, I nearly threw up. You were angry. You I were, was, like, so mad. I, I couldn't deal with it. It was like I'd just woken up from a coma. But do you think there's something in that that's like... Um, Okay, I'm willing to read about a young woman, but an old woman. Do you know what I mean? In, I in want, your head, like a prejudice. The whole book builds towards her prime, which 
you know, you're supposed to believe is between someone's 24th and 40th year. Yeah. And that's another um, fantastic thing about this novel. This is about a woman who makes it, or does she even really make it? But it gives someone in their senior years as much um, as much muscularity and, and force and and sort of breadth as a character as someone in their quote-unquote youth. Yeah. And so much in today's society is all about, you know, if you don't do it by 35, sorry, that's right? who you is. And it's, so lo- and it's also, it skips the thing of like... Um, uh, 20 years passed and uh, Alma had written three books on plant biology. And I love how it just totally skips over that moment of like, oh my God, I'm going to publish a book yeah, on plant yeah, biology. And yeah. it just goes like, yeah, you know, whatever. You don't need to see that. You've seen that in other books. And so I love that about Gilbert. She'll never write anything she thinks that you could read somewhere else. You and know? so you jump from her 20s into her mid to late 40s. And Ambrose arrives. And Ambrose arrives. And he is a master lithographer she finds his lithographs before she finds him she just mm-hmm. sees these and this is someone who Alma sketches orchid uh, moss is it orchids as well she, she sketches she sketches plants, plants. Yeah. This is, it's a thing it's the 1800s everyone apparently is sketching plants um, <laughs> it's the Instagram stories at the time it, <laughs> and um Ambrose's sketches show up, these lithographs, and they are by far the best lithographs Alma has ever seen. And this is someone who, you know, was told that beauty isn't a thing you have to be, have to be worried about. In fact, Beatrix at one point says, uh, beauty is not necessary. Beauty is accuracy's distraction. <laughs> That's so good, though. Beatrix, you ledge. And, um, and he's so charming. And Al- Ambrose shows up and he is this carefree classless man in the sense that he has no sense of his own class and privilege he sits on the floor she's never seen that before yeah. he has the the worst briefcase you've ever seen he comes up with the clothes on his back but he's very well spoken he's an extremely religious man turns out he's come from a family of ministers and she is he is the opposite of everything she's ever encountered in a man in a male figure in her life he shows up and slowly over the course of a few chapters you realise you kind of see it coming you want it to happen yeah. she falls in love with this man but and, and and their their chemistry is immediate. It's like something in a rom com. They just for every point there's a counterpoint. They they just like for someone who is interacting with characters in a very kind of slow and deliberate way the entire time that we meet we know her. Yeah, she's suddenly, ca- like, yeah, she, she's she's suddenly like, popping and zazzing and exactly. you know it's that what we said at the beginning. It's that idea of like I have to stay centered to my logic, my reason, my yeah. science. And then he shows up and he's everything that she isn't. And she gives it all up. And you feel her giving. And it you up. feel the immediate chemistry you feel it, and the freeing. the yeah, pull yeah. of it, the gravitational pull of this man. And also, not only is he like her her equal in terms of uh, how they can talk freely, their understanding um, of, of the natural world, and yeah, and they basically have the same level of knowledge as each other, except they come at it from completely different angles. Which she, is the which is the most exciting thing in the world, yeah, right? When you meet someone like that, they're, they're equal skilled boxers with different punching styles. And yeah, you just want to see how that fight ends up. And yeah, she she comes at it from the uh, from the from faith sorry from reason and from science and logic and he comes at it through sort of supernaturally tinged science Mm. and again another amazing thing in the book I know we're running out of time but there's that amazing scene that's never resolved this actually comes up again later on in the book whereby they seem to communicate telepathically yes so there is this binding closet oh yeah which we haven't even how are we not talk about the body closet? We, oh, need to, God. we need to do an extra this, episode. We, oh, God. If, if I had closet. a whole other hour, I would I would go for it. Seriously. So um, what's really important about Alma is that she is a... a masturbator. A, a, <laughs> she loves to wank. She's the and we hear so much history. about it. <laughs> I can't imagine what it must be like as a man to hear, to, to, to oh read God. so many passages just about masturbating I, as a woman. Uh, I think I've, it's the best... Having, you know, as a man, you watch a lot of porn in your life. Yeah. And... 
I, you feel like you understand the female orgasm on some sense, but understanding it through this book is a completely separate, uh, separate thing. It's described as a how is it a mag a magnetic phosphorescence, a yeah. burning phosphorescence from inside her or something like that. And I'm like, I need to get me some of that. <laughs> get me to the closet, Alma. Um, yeah, and. So she has that experience. I think in her late teens, she finds basically what's... Basically some porn. Basically porn. 18th yeah. century, 19th century porn. Um, and she, she, the whole book culminates in her wanting to basically have sex with a man. She yeah. Wants it with someone she so loves. So she's this like, very plain, very solid scientific woman. But underneath her is this burning, burning desire to just fucking be fucked. <laughs> and, and so she meets Ambrose and he, they, they're having this like quarrel basically because he has all these kind of ludicrous ideas about God and the natural world and how God interacts with the natural world and he's kind of like I, I can't explain to you it's kind of not it's not like a intellectual thing it's a spiritual thing and I need, I need which is to, never good enough for her she, never she, good she, enough she, she just she, she can't, can't leave well enough alone ever no. and um, then she she takes him into the binding closet which is where she her secret place her secret place where she goes to masturbate mm-hmm. um, and then they sort of ha- they sort of touch hands and have he takes control at that point as well. He, yeah. He's like, I'm going to show you something here. I'm going to prove to you that I'm right and you're wrong. And so they sit there in silence and she thinks that Ambrose is talking to her, but it turns out through, you know, you, you find out he actually isn't. But she, Well, they, they have a spiritual conversation, they but spiritual they talk past one another in a way. Yes. Oh, and so at that moment, they decide to get almost married. get married. Yeah. Uh, and... There's a contract she thinks she's signed, but she's not signed that contract. And, and, and this is the most devastating part of the book and what we've been alluding to this entire time when we talk about when Alma gives up on science and logic, she is uh, fucked over by law and nature, um, which is that what, he, what she thinks they've agreed to is this marriage. And what he thinks they've agreed to is what he calls a marriage blanc. I can't, I, yes, I can't remember. Cha- what. He wants a chaste marriage. Yeah, he it's, wants a marriage. it's a union whereby... To to consummate it with sex would almost be beside the point. And in yeah. fact, you would then just simply become mortal when he wants to become this kind of supernatural being. And it gets to this point where they have their wedding day, which is a small private ceremony in Whiteacre. And it's quite... Who's an- there? Hannah, Hannah, Hannah Groot, de Groot there. and uh, Henry are there. And Beatrix isn't alive at this point, is she? Yeah, Prudence won't come because she doesn't go to Whiteacre anymore. Yeah. Um, and Prudence. They, they, uh, <laughs> Prudence, get over yourself! Um, and then... Um, so they have this kind of slightly sad, weird wedding ceremony. It's and rushed. Then, it's rushed. It's Hen- rushed. Henry's like, yeah, fine. Fine, yeah. you can have it. The marriage will make you happy, you 50-year-old woman. Have the sad ceremony. Yes. And they go to bed that night wearing... And I don't even have time for this part of the chat with the book, which is one of my favorite parts, wearing a nightgown that Prudence has donated to her. And she's ready to have sex for the first time as a 50-year-old woman. And he just takes her hand in bed, in their marital bed, kisses her on the top of the knuckle and says, in our dreams, we will be able to share more because our intellectual minds won't get in the way of our spiritual minds. And she goes, okay. And then he goes to sleep. <laughs> and the same thing happens for five nights. And to the point where Alma... She stays up all night that night as well, her wedding night. Yeah, and she, he's, ho- he's holding can't... her hand while, uh, while he's asleep. Yeah. What a sexless weirdo. What a strange little so, supernatural worm. So strange and weird. And then eventually... You're, but, but the whole novel up to that point, if, if you haven't read this, dear listeners, the whole novel in some sense has been leading to that because all she's been doing, apart from being a brilliant scientist and excellent conversationist... Is wanking. Is wanking in a closet. And you've been waiting for that time she gonga laid. And it just doesn't happen. And I was gutted. Gutted. I was gutted. 
I tweeted about this actually. Someone tweeted when they saw this, this thing come out for me being on Signature. I was like, I was just, I was genuinely annoyed. Yeah. So you know, there's been in the rest of the novel being like, okay, it's got to happen here. It's going to happen in Tahiti. It's going to happen on the wedding boat. It's yeah. going to happen in Amsterdam. And it never does. It never does. It never so does. Um, what happens then is that she kind of is humiliated, sends Ambrose away. There's a tragic scene where she almost fo- she forces herself on him in the bathroom. Yeah, and she, all she wants to do is go down on him. She's just like, I just, I, how does she describe it? I wanted to feel him in my mouth or something yeah, like that. Yeah, something yeah. super visceral. And the look of horror on his face is, yeah, he could not. He just looked like he's. And it's taken so much for her to do that. You yeah, know? no, it's, it's taken, taken days so and days much. and days, and she's just, it's just this volcano of to the point lust. where she thinks that people are lying about sex. <laughs> this point where she's like, you'd be insane. Your fifty, yeah. 50. You'd, be, you'd be going mental. I've read all these things. I've been reading this porn in these giant books. And now I'm finally married and my husband doesn't want to fuck me. How would you not feel insane in that environment? Oh, it's so stressful. It's so stressful. So she sends him away from Whiteacre. He quickly dies after that. This beautiful man who's also sexless and weird. And then she Do finds... Do we have time to discuss Tahiti and tomorrow morning as she discusses... Honestly, I, I don't know whether somebody has the recording space after us, so I'm just going to keep going until someone kicks us out. Okay, we're locked in, guys. We could get kicked out at any moment. <laughs> we, got to the, we got to cover the north and the south hemisphere and then her death. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, so then she gets sent these drawings by... Oh, my God, who's the guy? Who's Dick the, Yancey. Dick Yancey. Dick Crocodile Yancey. man. He looks like a crocodile. Crocodile man, sunken eyes, scariest man in Her dad's business associate. Yeah, he's obviously a good fixer because he's Henry Wicks' lifetime assistant. And this guy hates most men, uh, but not not Dick Yancey. Dick Yancey hands her a valise and says, burn it or something. Yeah, and it's the valise that Ambrose has been carrying for the whole... Time. His battered suitcase that he yeah. always carried around. His with him. post-its folder. His po- oh my god, <laughs> I've not been drawing men into Haiti yet. Um, so that's what he finds. So he finds a series of sketches of the same boy. She thinks it's a boy, young boy, and on the back of each page is written "Tomorrow morning." Yeah. And she, first of all, she thinks, and they're new drawings as well. And they're new drawings, uh, sexually provocative. These aren't just life sketches. These are. A young boy, she thinks, lying on a bed, sketched in all of his glory. Yeah. Um, and and it's, it's then it occurs to her that the man she married is gay. Was a gay potential. And is now dead. Yeah. And yeah. now he's dead. So this is a lot to take And on. also, everyone knew. Everyone knew, including Henry. Who was like senile at this point, basically. Completely insane scene where she sort of reveals this to to Henry in his office. And, and thinking almost, she's being gentle with him as well. Yeah, and he almost falls over laughing, being like, oh, so, oh, my God, this is a, dub, this is a double whammy again for, for Alma because not only does she reveal this to Henry and Henry then says like, uh, yeah, I know. Also, I know because I was buggered on the ship, Alma. Like, she's yeah. like, what? And then, <laughs> and then he's insane and old and doesn't care. And the wait, uh, what's it called, the um, servant girls who are serving them tea and cakes are in the room and he's saying, uh, Alma... Do you think I don't recognize these men who are buggering me on the ship with Captain Cook? Why do you think they took me on there? Because I could lift rope? No, I had a nice pink ass. <laughs> and she's like, quiet, father, quiet. Oh and the my servants God. are slowly And her father, her, her, her hero for her entire life. And who, again, we spent the first 100 pages on this swashbuckling adventure, like where he's like this amazing man. Is like, no, I was a bum boy. I was a catamite for years. <laughs> and it years. just explodes her whole sense of who her father is. Yeah, and she gets, so she... It is actually her life is long passages of nothingness 
filled with moments of absolute catastrophe and they happen on top of each other. So towards the end of the book, five key characters die within two pages. She has the news about Ambrose and she reveals to Henry and then not long after that he dies. Um, She has Beatrix's death followed by the, the uh, the calamitous marriage to Ambrose. So it's like her whole life is punctuated by these moments of disaster. And it's only when she leaves Whiteacre that, which I guess is the central theme of the novel, when she finally leaves home and she finds struggle and she actually tests herself against the reality of the world that she actually becomes who she wishes to be or she actually makes sense for the world herself. She's not getting stuff through her father or Ambrose or George Hawkes or Prudence or letters or scientists who are visiting her. She's then breaking free from the confines of the, the, the sort of conservatory she's grown up in and she has to test herself and if she can suffer and survive and and she does and she thrives and it's not instant it's not like she's like oh it turns out i love traveling it's like she it's very like um book of mormon in that she gets her stuff stolen on the first day everyone ignores her she loses a microscope i wanted to punch the guy in the face (laughs) where he's like well yes well people lose things around here (laughs) she's carried that halfway across the world you asshole well maybe it'll come back maybe it won't and then (laughs) You just want to shake like, him. Well, it was either going to get stolen today or tomorrow. <laughs> you know when we had that moment in the Atlanta airport where the person was like, yeah, flight's gone. And I was like, yeah. they changed the time of the flight. And the guy was like, yeah, just buy a new one. I was like, that's uh, oh my God. $800. And like, I, I had the same anger for Alma in that moment that I had at Atlanta airport. Where I just, yeah. All I wanted to do was grab the person by the throat and slam their face into the MacBook. <laughs> I think when someone refuses to take on the gravity yeah. of your problems, you're like, why can't you yeah. see? This is bad. You, almost, you don't even want them to solve it. You just want them to be like, this is the worst thing I've seen for a while. And then you're like, mm, okay, fine. I'm happy now. Yeah. Someone just sort of goes, deal with it. You just, you're like, no. <laughs> it's this volcanic rage. Oh, yeah. So. Um, we, we probably do have to wrap this up, unfortunately. But I, I feel honestly, like we spent ages and ages on little things and then we yeah. skimmed for the rest of the book. Um, so she goes, she goes to Tahiti. She meets tomorrow morning. Meets tomorrow. Tomorrow morning person, turns out to be a person uh, and a fantastic person, perhaps the most charismatic person in the book. Yeah, more so than Henry, which is saying something. Yeah, and he's a fantastic. Uh, he's formed his own religion, his own version of Christianity. Is that right? He's a missionary. Yeah. He's taken the missionary's religion and formed it into his own thing because the missionaries should teach strict Christianity, but they kind of adapt it for different cultures because no one really wants to have it part and parcel. Of they don't, they don't want clean Christianity. They want to have mix it with their own cultures, which is a big no-no in Europe. But mm-hmm. they're in Tahiti, and what they're going to do? Like, yeah. come down on a whaling vessel to tell them off. They don't give a shit. Yeah, and he, he's like almost like a demigod in his in his society as well. You know, yeah, like, he's he, yeah, he's probably the most respected man. He's definitely the most respected man on all the islands. And then Alma wants to know who who and why this, this who this man is and why the sketches appeared and what did he do to Ambrose what did Ambrose do to him and again it tomorrow morning has the same experience with Ambrose that Alma had they both were kind of caught up in his emotional and whirlwind. wanted to possess him and they wanted to possess him and be possessed by him um, and they wanted to they wanted to get caught up in this sort of supernatural experience and tomorrow morning also has that experience with ambrose um they 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 communicate through um to what whatever we would call tele- is it telepathy i guess yeah. so some sort of supernatural method um and they confess that to each other in a cave of mosses on top of a hill uh. and alma finally gets her oats of some kind after this is confessed she slides down covered in water and sprinkles from the waterfall 
and gives tomorrow morning what sounds like the blowjob of a lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's like it's so it's it's like she, and this is all she ever really wanted. Well, it is know? the blowjob of her lifetime. It's the yeah. other one. So yeah. Yeah, and that's kind of the sole sexual encounter of her life, and mm. it's kind of enough. Surrounded in a cave of spongy, glistening mosses, spongy, soft, wet moss. It's great. Um, and the rest of the book, I think we should sort of leave. I know we do a lot of spoilers on this podcast, but I think it's good for people to sort of discover by themselves a little bit. Yeah, I think for me, we talked about this the other day when you watched me finish the book, turn yeah. the final page. For me, the ending um, is almost by the by. Yeah, I, it could almost of, end at the blowjob, really. Could, it could end, honestly end. It doesn't need the trip to Amsterdam for me. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, the bit with Roger the dog where he gets passed over to the uncle is timelessly wonderful because we love dogs. We are biased. We have a dog. We uh, like dogs. Uh, he, I don't know. You, I don't care if you don't like dogs. Feeding a dog French toast off a fork. Who doesn't like that? Who doesn't, who doesn't want to read that? that? <laughs> um, and... You know, for me, the ending is a bit Spielbergy in that you know, or, yeah. bit, or not even Spielberg. Yeah, Spielberg because it feels Forrest Gumpy. She ends up meeting yeah. Darwin. She meets R- Alfred Russell Wallace. It's a bit like, oh, okay, fine. You had the ideas; they had fine. It, it just feels a little bit like she wanted to have an explosive ending that ties up mm. the threads of history. And I understand why she did that because in her research, and I didn't know this until I looked into the background of the book. You know, evolution wasn't so much Darwin's idea as it was he had the best expression of the ideas that mm. were going around at the time. But again, this feels like we're dragging science and like reality into what otherwise is an amazing story about a fictional woman. And yeah. we have to tack on this bit of re- real history at the end. And for me, that didn't work, but other people might disagree. Mm. So, Gavin Day, thank, Hi. thank you so much for coming on this podcast. Thanks for making me. I didn't, you didn't make me, I enjoyed have it. You, have, you, have you enjoyed it? I honestly, Seeing how I work. Honestly, honestly, <laughs> I'm here. I honestly thought we could be doing this podcast from the comfort of our own home, and now we're surrounded by these lovely offices and people walking past looking very professional. They don't know what we do. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, 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 I truly love this book, um, and as someone who f- tries to read more fiction by women, um, you know, and tries to get different perspectives on things outside of what I think I want to read. I mm. mean, the idea of prestige literature and prestige writing and I mean this is fairly prestige I think the only reason it isn't regarded as prestige is because Elizabeth Elizabeth Gilbert wrote it and because she still has the eat pray love shadow you know as we discussed it's I mean more books like this for me uh, it's I don't know and it's so chatty as well you know that's what I love about the tone of it is that it has that sort of chatty playfulness I'd love to hear could, could listeners tweet in suggestions for me I'm happy to be your guinea pig here chuck yeah. suggestions at me I like hist- I now like I now like um, historical novels that have a contemporaneous feel they don't feel like written in the past with candlesticks and chandeliers and mm. like dust road they feel like they could be they're just they're 21st century novels that just so happen to be written in the early 1800s so please dear listeners tweet at me <laughs> send me your ideas yeah. and I will read them for you and tweet back at you <laughs> um, I also like books like that so please tweet me also <laughs> uh, and people can tweet you at underscore Gavin Day underscore Gavin Day on all the socials yeah yeah and uh, they can see your work uh, on some tube ads yeah and, and uh, well we, we can't and, talk about uh, we can't we, we can't talk about um, some of the stuff I'm doing right now because it's NDA but oh sorry you'll see stuff around London and the big cities next. he's NDA'd everybody um, thank you so much for coming on I'll see you at home. Thank you very much. Goodbye, garbage. I love you all. Aww.
That's it for another series of Sentimental Garbage. I really hope you enjoyed these episodes. We'll be back in a few weeks with a whole new batch, so keep an eye on the Twitter account at SentimentalPod for updates. I also now have a newsletter, sentimentalgarbage.substack.com, where essays and reading lists can be emailed directly to your inbox. This series of Sentimental Garbage was produced by me, Caroline Donahue, mixed by Hannah Barrell, recorded at ACAST Studios. We had music by Harry Harris, artwork by Gavin Day, and we'll see you soon for more of it. Thanks so much for listening. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com.